Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com. And when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. So we are live. And listen, uh, great, Nick, to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. I know who you are. I always say that when I start these things, but I just would like you to introduce yourself to people that may not uh, have come across you. Sure. So my current role at Deloitte is HRD Talent Learning, which is kind of like the UK Chief Learning Officer. Um, In terms of where I've come from, I I did a stint in sort of client-facing work, heading up learning innovation for another big consultancy. I did five years at BP um, through uh, in the the kind of aftermath of Deepwater Horizon, Uh, five years at the BBC, fascinating um, in, I suppose, the the lead up to kind of Savile and all that, um, and at Siemens. I started my career as a psychology lecturer um, and studied philosophy a lot. And I wrote a book recently called How People Learn. So that's me. Boom. In a nutshell. That's it. That's all I've, that's all I've been doing. <laughs> so, uh, great, great to hear that. And, and I guess, uh, you know, we had a, a little chat just before we get started. And, you know, that, that path, which you said, you know, at relative pace, just to give some context to you, um, I, I, I guess I'd be fascinated in hearing those stepping stones that takes you from maybe that academic space into that more kind of commercial world that you're operating in and what was the thinking or or the the nudges or the 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 little moments in time that kind of shifted you through your your journey to to the role that you inhabit today you didn't get paid very much as a psychology lecturer that was my first job um I, i i would stand in front of students who weren't much younger than me you know i was a couple of pages ahead of them in terms of the textbook um, and working my way through, you know, the curriculum and the things that I was supposed to teach. And, and the whole thing was, it was ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. You stand there talking about Piaget and it, the learning should be exploratory. And you are literally writing on a board. Piaget said learning should be exploratory. and People are copying it down with no interest in it whatsoever. And, and, and you, you sort of realize through that experience that actually something else is going on. You're just, it's just a charade, right? This is like, so, you know, people would put their hand up if something became particularly interesting. So I remember the debate that you know really kick people off that like animal rights you know people get very enthused but you know you, you have to stop people talking about what they they really cared about and say oh you know that's enough we're gonna have to move on with the curriculum and 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 smart people who've been teachers smart good teachers will realize that education gets in the way of learning that actually we were stopping people learning about the things they're really interested in in the interest of preparing them for a test which they do frankly by cramming the few weeks before the test and you know uh, and then forgetting it all after the test and the bizarre thing is that's the model we have in corporate you know we're constantly getting people to cram stuff so they can forget it you know with no impact on performance but so so i i was offered more to work in a startup i worked in a startup for a bit that was wild crazy we were um, i was a technology enthusiast i sort of somehow felt that technology could save us all if if we just knew how to use it in the right way and then i went to siemens and that was a turning point for me because i had all of the levers so i i knew what a lot of people didn't about learning theory and uh, and technology um and I was one of the few people who existed at the intersection. I thought, I'm going to change the world because I'm going to apply all of this learning theory over here and everything I know about technology, Flash and HTML and the internet at the time, and create super learning. And we created this all singing, all dancing, AI-driven, story-driven, narrative-driven simulation of a thing. And it makes no difference. That was the interesting thing I learned at that point, that we actually did this experimentally. We compared people just reading a text of some information with this thing where we'd implemented 
Bruner's three modes of a representation. Like an Eben House then, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, we, and we measured recall and it, it makes mm. no difference. And, and we realized that there's a whole industry yeah. just built around nonsense that, that we were yeah. part of. And so that was the beginning of my exploration for how do people really learn? And it took me probably a decade to figure that out. And I wrote it down in a book. And it is in the sense kind of, as far as I'm concerned, the first book about learning. It introduces the first general theory of learning, the first way of of thinking about learning that corresponds with what people experience in everyday life and what we experience in business. So the title of the book is how people learn. How I'm, people not, I'm learn. not here to plug the book. I mean, I'm, no, 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 you've I, no, I'm absolutely. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. I, I totally get that, but it would be, listen, yeah. it, it, you know, yeah. if, if you yeah. own a snowboarding <laughs> company, yeah. I'd say, what's yeah. the name of the snowboarding company? So don't worry about that. So if, if anyone uh, on this podcast is interested in how people learn, there's a book called how people learn, which tells you how people learn. That's that. Yeah. I, I, trying to make it as clear as i could i, I do love that moment of those <laughs> those paradigm moments where you go i'm writing something on a board that is completely contradictory to the reality of what i'm actually supposed to be teaching <laughs> you know yeah you know and i think these are these moments yeah. in life where you either i mean it speaks to you i think because you either go and i'm all right with that you know and and people stay yeah. in that space so i teach martial arts and i've been t- teaching martial arts for a long time created a my uh, sort of reality-based approach and i got people in and we do a certain technique i say show me your best technique and it would either work or it wouldn't and if it didn't work i would always ask the question are you still going to teach it yeah and 99 times out of 100 they go yes because it's in the system i go yeah but you've just acknowledged it doesn't work and they go yeah but it's in the system and you have to do it to get the belt well then maybe take it out oh no i can't do that and then other people would go, 1% would go, no, I'm not teaching it anymore. I go, why not? Well, it don't work, does it? I go, no, good lad. Right, you can join. <laughs> and it's that it's that mentality. Yeah. It's the same thing. But that's really interesting because that, and that ultimately links to what I guess we can talk about leadership yeah. at some point. But, you know, yeah. so one of the things about people, that I, it took me a long time to realize that everybody thinks other people are like them. So I was the kind of person who went through life philosophy and psychology, right? I would challenge things. You know, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And it wasn't until I got into kind of corporate life that I realized that's not how meetings work. Nobody wants the bloke who's actually going to ask the, <laughs> the why questions. Everybody's supposed to nod and smile at the same points. And I, I think there's, there, yeah, okay, so there's a certain um, self-centeredness around that. But I think that's how where I learned it is that people do generally project into the world. And that happens with leadership is that, you know, leaders will, expect other leaders to lead in the way that they lead and they they project their own standards onto other people that's tremendously corrosive in the way we select leaders in the way we build teams of people um, or or fail to build diverse teams of people so that's something i did i I went through life asking why 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 and continually being baffled by the fact that the vast majority of people just wanted to get on with whatever everybody else was doing you know regardless of whether or not it was having an impact or it was meaningful or or something they even believed in deeply themselves so this is a fascinating thing you work for an organization that has got a name that is instantly recognizable and by definition from the outside looking in so i'm going to talk about this with you know a kind of um perp- a conscious incompetence is i'm i look at something i go deloitte must have a a template in in my mind looking in i would look at many not just i would look at many corporations and go there is a way of being in that place and space and i've already met you and i can see that that's it's its own sort of contradiction so does an organization like that 
sometimes just keep going because it seems to be paying the bills? Or does it almost do a kind of event horizon moment that goes, "Mm, yeah, it might be working for us now, but we can see where the momentum is going to roll out. We're going to run out of momentum for this strategy because different people, different thinking, or we've made mistakes and it's because we didn't have that diversity. And is that where somebody like you comes in to kind of go, you know, it's, you can't destroy it, but help us shift the angle and help us see the world in a different place and space. And I guess the question is, what do you see your role within the organization? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking that question. I mean, it wasn't scripted, but and uh, I, I, I have to do the usual disclaimer. I'm not like a spokesperson for Deloitte, but I'm happy sure. to kind of share my view. I had the yeah. privilege, to your point, of addressing like uh, sort of um, 1,100 new grad starts because one of the programs I'm responsible for is our induction. That meant I was able to kind of give a, a kickoff speech. And I think it's really interesting. Um, two things, both of which related to your point. One is, I think it's really important. And I said this when I was talking to them, that they find their sense of purpose. A lot of people join an organization and they're just handed a sense of purpose. But I think Deloitte is genuinely increasingly um, and very explicitly about purpose. We obviously, Deloitte has a kind of sense of purpose, but we also want to encourage people to find a sense of purpose. Otherwise, there's a very real risk. You leave school, you go and do a job, you do what you're told, and you get to 30 and you realize you've wasted half your life just doing what you're told. So one of the kind of the starting points was use Deloitte as a way of finding your sense of purpose and connecting deeply to the things that matter to you. This isn't school. We're not just going to tell you what to do all the time. And the other thing, which is perhaps is more closely related to your question, why why do people use an organization like Deloitte? Um, And it's because, well, let me tell you a story. Uh, When I joined the BBC, I was told, I I was sort of an enthusiastic young man who wanted to make a difference, like a lot of young people are. I was sitting in a taxi with a guy called Gareth, and he leaned across and said, Nick, let me give you a piece of advice. He said, "Uh, nobody ever got fired for not making a decision. I thought, wow, that's that's really odd advice. But it turned out to be really on the money, which was it was a kind of organization where your safest strategy was just not to decide anything. And you realize in leadership that, this is sort of filibustering and and not making a decision is actually a pretty good way to become a certain type of leader, a grey leader, but potentially a very senior leader. And the, the the link back to what I'm talking about is there are reasons why there are a whole multitude of reasons why people hire a consultancy. It might be kind of resource cap um, limitations, whatever. But one of them, and the real one that really excited me when I was client facing work, is we get to do the things that people in the organization perhaps are afraid to do, innovate, you know, think about the, the next steps, you know, sometimes take the risks that, that people in the organization perhaps aren't to research around something and, and look at different ways of doing things. And, and that, I think, is one of the more fascinating things about consultancy is that ability, privilege, I guess, to, to make some of the changes that people who have a more, you know, fitting in type role within organizations, to your point, perhaps are afraid to do. So do you have, I mean, people can't operate very easily in organizations of of a certain, well, probably any organization, but without a license to operate. There has to be a certain, you know, we can all be ourselves, but then there's a point if we want to change others, then there's there's boundaries and there's a license to operate. So do you have a mandate? You know, do you, is there a sense for you that, yeah, I've, I've a very specific kind of expectation on myself 
you know, to bring certain things into the organization, you know, for the, you know, for the, for the good. And do you, do you have that in your mind clearly? Is that something that you, you, you work with? And cause I do sometimes find people in your role that go, well, what I want to do is, and I go, yeah, but does any other bugger know about it? <laughs> and, they go, and it's almost like a covert change. And I, I just wonder if you have a sense of a, an open mandate. Yeah, I think it's sort of more or less explicit. I think anyone listening to this will have a role where some of the bits of the mandate are explicit and some are implicit. And mm-hmm. I think one way of looking at it in my roles, you might think, well, I might say something really bland, like you'd expect a kind of a, a chief learning officer to say about our mandate is growth and development of people. Whatever. Well, it is, but actually there are different mandates within that, as I realised, the different buckets, as I like to think of them. So there's one which is around compliance and regulation. We, we, we absolutely have to do certain things to, to kind of keep the regulators happy um, and to remain kind of compliant with legislation and so on. That's really important. And then there's something around certification, which is slightly different, you know, which is, you know, meeting the needs of our clients in terms of, you know, demonstrable capability. And then there's performance support, which is a kind of different one, which is like, how do I help people do the job? That's not always about learning. Performance support is about, can I get the stuff, the useful stuff, the resources I need when I need them? And then maybe there's a fourth one, which is experience, which is some of the things we do, like Deloitte University, which is, so we have our own bricks and mortar facilities, um, proper kind of uh, university. Those are incredible experiences for people. Not necessarily about like school, like, can you pass the test? But they will be experiences and stories that people tell for years to come. And what you're doing there is something slightly different. It's more like Disneyland. You know, it's like you're crafting an experience which will change somebody for, for years to come by the, by the nature of, of that experience. And that, that, I think, is super interesting. And, you know, when you talk about developing people, there's, you know, we talk about competencies and depending on which book you, you read, you know, you can, you can have a different sort of set of competencies for d- developing people. But I wonder for you, I, I've got a question that's slightly left of field and depends, you know, if we want to talk about it, but I'm seriously alert to, and I haven't got a better word for it. So with a bit of luck you have, is a kind of uh, an overarching social wokeness drive that means that for leaders in particular there is a almost a danger will robinson you know as in how you express or what you can talk about and i don't think it's pervading fully but there's a momentum and i think there's also a pushback against it you know um but i think there's an interesting balance of back in the day pre-internet the conversations were probably simpler, but now people have a concern about the way things, what do I say? Can I use this word? Yesterday, this was okay. Maybe it's not now. And that's sitting on top of just, in essence, leading to get the day job done. And I just wonder how that factors in because it's something I see a lot of people struggling with. They're not quite sure what the answer is. So I just wondered where you, you sort of sit with that awareness, I guess. Look, I'm I'm quite an old geezer, so I remember. Um, I'm, yeah, that's the point where you're supposed to say you don't look it, but um, well, we might I be the same remember, age, which is I'm slightly worried about what you're going to say. Old is. Um, I, I do remember different kinds of leadership, and actually, I think the direction of travel is healthy because I think that there's been a problem with leadership, which is this kind of driver. You know, it's all about just uh, this kind of very directive 
style of leadership, which is demonstrably not the most effective way to lead. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot, I've spent a lot of time building programs that, that show leaders that in different ways. And um, it, I know it hurts. I know it's a struggle for people, but that's what progress feels like, you know, a struggle to think about what's the right thing to say. If you're not thinking about what's the right thing to say to a person, then what kind of a leader are you? Because the reality is everybody in your team is different and it is your job to understand what those differences are and flex your style accordingly and to actually connect to that individual. Not not because it's the woke thing to do, but because that's how you will get the best out of that team. And also that is how that person will have the best experience of you as a leader and so the pressure on leaders to do this to be to listen better to care more to be more flexible they may not even may not like it but that that's what leader good leadership is about and should be about and yeah i know it may be tough for some of us old dinosaurs perhaps to adapt but i love the fact that i'm continually being challenged and developing and growing personally so yeah i mean i expect to make mistakes i expect to be called out on my mistakes i expect to learn and develop and grow from them some of the mistakes you can make as a leader can be fatal mistakes and so some of the training that we provide you know is around pointing leaders at those top 10 mistakes in fact while i was <laughs> this is interesting side while i was at bp we built um, a transitional program for leaders and one of the most popular things was top 10 mistakes you know nobody ever thinks to build that into a learning program but when we talk to leaders that's what really mattered to them you know how do i screw this job up in the first six weeks why didn't anybody tell me about that we mm. we did and and it's helpful that's fascinating isn't it and that's almost and again i I always hark back to what i know best which is again combination of my sports experiences and and very very often when you see really good instructors teaching technique versus the ones that aren't the ones that aren't will teach you the perfection that person does this then you do that and then they do this of course in the real world of course that's not what happens you do something and then the other bugger does something else and you've got no idea what they're going to do and so you see some people trained with a sense of they have a, a a kind of a full spectrum of it's never really wrong it's just on the spectrum of things that can happen versus other people that are maybe trained in a kind of esoteric excellence and then they carry an anxiety about never being that good or i've got a word wrong and they're not willing you know they're not, they're not being trained to to be it's okay you know and if the person is trying to catch you out on purpose well then that's a conversation about what you're experiencing about them not necessarily that you fundamentally failed so i think there's that uh, i think i'm hearing a practicality in what yeah you're saying. but I mean, let me link that back because that's a really interesting point i want to link it back to the thing you asked about earlier which is so we consistently i think hire often the wrong kinds of leaders hmm. um and it's funny to me how systematically we build this into leadership. And one of the things that we most often do is we, we promote people because they're really good at the job. And that's exactly the wrong person to promote as leader. But that's what we do. Take somebody who's really good at a job. And this was true in many of the organizations I've worked in. Say, Peter Principal You're so good at your job. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so why is that the wrong person? Well, because that person's natural inclination now is to get everybody else to do it the way 
they did it. They they are the the, the person yeah. who, who who stressed over it, who who nailed all the detail, who who did it perfectly. And now they're trying to derive and direct everybody to do it exactly the way. And what they'll do is they'll take over. Somebody isn't doing it. And the, what is the problem with that? Because that may ultimately be the best way to do it. The problem is you've got a massively then disengaged and demotivated team who feel like they're being treated by, by like children. You know, it's, it's mm. not news to any of us that that sort of micromanagement happens a lot. And, and it happens because we systematically appoint the wrong people to leadership. And then we, you and I are in, in leadership learning. We've, we have to turn that around. We have to take people who are micromanaging, you know, who are in the detail and say, no, 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 you gotta, you, you've got to think about different people. You've got to be people focused. You've got to support people. You've got to coach. And, mm. and, and, and they're the people who are going to find it toughest you know so it's it's really interesting like that, that dynamic and how that plays into you know being supportive and inclusive a kind of so-called level five um leader yeah i've uh, it's fascinating that you say that i was it reminds me of a gentleman i was doing some one-to-one coaching with and he said you know what guy i've come to the conclusion i think i rob people of their experiences and i thought that's that's brilliant i said what when you say that just bring that to life for me he said well when i was younger he said if you got something wrong, you had a kind of week to put it right. You know, it would go wrong on a Monday. And the chances are by the end of the week, you put yeah. it right. So when everybody else found out about it, you'd already corrected it. And I think I was brought up in that time. That's why they gave me, I was given space because it was never that much of a disaster. But of course, now everybody knows about it within the hour. And then everybody wants to know within the hour. I said, and what it's turned me into the pro that that kind of systemic kind of change has shifted. See, I want to give people space, but I don't know how to give it because I I realised that I had I think I had time, and I don't feel as if I've got that to give to people, and that's a that's something I don't know if you kind of have that sense of that being true for for maybe yeah, that, one, one of those sort of dynamic changes. I think it was spot on. I actually worked for a big, massive multinational organization who'd made that part of their leadership standards, what we call kind of, spe- they call it space to deliver. And it was okay. about encouraging leaders to give people that space to kind of make mistakes and to learn. And then that goes hand in hand with kind of coaching. But it's easy for us on a call like this to kind of talk about that. It's really tough as a leader to to have that feeling that somebody isn't doing something the way you would do it. And nevertheless, let them get on with it, even when you think that's that might not go so well. You know, it's really tough. I've had that many times, and mm-hmm. you just have to step back. Um, I, I don't know about you. I'd love to hear you know some of your thoughts around this. But you know, when somebody, I often get asked, you know, what's the what's one of the most important things I need to understand? And I go, blimey, neck, you know, how long is a piece of string? But I, I think one of the things I've definitely started to say is it's your capacity to manage upwards around almost that grid of what's urgent, what's important, what, because if you hold everybody's anxieties, you, it becomes a funnel, like a concentrated anxiety. <laughs> you become a concentrated anxiety because you may be serving multiple people, you know, at any one time and your capacity to contract, to hold people at bay, to say, look, in the, in the scheme of things, where does this sit? I understand that, that capacity to manage other people's expectations or needs or um, whatever is, is one of the greatest ways, I think, to that personal resilience around then what you do unto others. And I, and I don't know if that's something that kind of resonates with you about that, that 
giving people that, how do you hold space, maybe push back, bring your curiosity. When for some people, yeah, but I'm quite junior guy, or I've only just landed, I haven't been here that long. I don't know if I have the seniority yet to, you know, to push back. And, and that's one of the, do I just have to get older and be here longer? You know, that that's, I think I see that in quite a lot of talent. They, they understand the argument, but the reality of turning that into what a senior person can do, I think a lot of people, uh, they don't quite know how to do it. I don't know if that's something that yeah. you kind of recognize. It's funny. I was talking to um, a friend of mine. You mentioned martial arts. He was a big fan of kind of Japanese, you know, movies, movie making. And he was talking about this. Uh, is it a, a trope or a, a kind of a, a theme in sort of these movies that the battle right. is won or lost before you know, he blows a strike or whatever, because it's, yeah. you know, it's all, it's all in the head. And I, I, I know it sounds childish, but it, it's been my observation. You mentioned resilience, but it's, it's much more than that. It's been my observation that you see people, those, especially as junior people, if the, the lack of emotional regulation is so visible to those people around them and actually as a, a especially at any level of leadership there's there's uncertainties and as you say you need to build confidence with your stakeholders and the, the people's anxiety show and their lack of self-confidence shows and actually it's so important that emotional regulation i've been in a really difficult meeting sometimes as we all have um and if you can't hold your nerve and respond you know calmly uh, uh, or, or project confidently then you're going to be limited and someone will spot it. And, mm. and regardless of your competencies and capabilities, whether or not that's right, I don't know. They will think, hmm, don't, can't really see that, that person at the next level. So I think that it's sort of a tacit part of leadership. But I think the other thing that you, it's really interesting what you said, it sparked in me is that leadership exists, basically your intention you are a place of tension across a number of spectrums between not taking risks. You will have literally a responsibility for risk management, whatever, and taking risks in terms of your strategy and, um, and whatever, being task focused and people focused, um, looking upwards and looking downwards. And so a lot of my career has been spent looking at different leaders and seeing where they are on those spectrums and how it works out for them. One of my failings as a leader is I'm less focused upwards and uh, on that spectrum more focused downwards i care a lot about the people in my teams and i want to work with them support them and develop them and you know I, i'm not constantly fretting over kind of senior stakeholders and that, and that can trip me up but everybody needs to look at their style look at the pros and cons of their approach and be able to move on those those sliders you know in order to kind of develop and, and be a better leader I think that's uh, something I really hear in what you're saying, which is I've learned over time that how I set a program up is massively important. You've you've got to connect with what well, I, I call it, yeah, the the craft of of leadership or the craft of learning, because we can put you through anything, and it could be technically brilliant, but if you if you don't want to be there, then oh, blooming neck, you know, it's 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 a battle. Mm. So. I'm 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 interested. I just doing a little bit of background reading as I do on people. This kind of effective um, context, effective context uh, yeah, yeah. This that, that you know what you know. I can teach you anything, right? And it doesn't yeah. matter how good it is. But if you can't contextualize it to your own need, if you can't put an emotional connection onto it, either for yourself or for others, it almost probably doesn't matter where it comes from. Then you know it's it's going to slide yeah. on by. So for one-to-one -one coaching, when somebody has come to the coach and they want something, hey, but when it's, when it's a, a program for an organization, 
you know, what are your kind of thoughts and stepping stones to, um, you know, I've been told I've got to maybe all the way through to, you know, just, just your thoughts on that really. Wow, where's my soapbox? <laughs> well, exactly. I, uh, you know, yeah, is, why not, right? I spend, <laughs> I spend a lot of time talking. And about another this thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think we're. Uh, I'm hes- I'm, uh, it's not that we're idiots um, in the design of these programs. I think sure. it's just that we we do what we all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. We do what's normal, and what's normal is education. And education means you start with a textbook, you put it in a course put some powerpoints you tell people about it and basically that's how most learning programs including leadership programs are built somebody to take a textbook translate it into bullet points you know stand up there facilitate it reading bullet points like me as a lecturer you know to people who are sitting down taking notes and every so often because it's you know progressive will break for a little tokenistic exercise and what people actually get out of that what they will consistently tell us they get out of that is the chance to network and you know a bit of a chance to stand back for the day job so it's just nuts really what we're doing there so there, there are two kinds of things you can do in in any learning context and certainly in leadership i think one is that if you were really interested about leadership performance you would build performance support leaders don't know how to do a whole bunch of things especially first level leaders they don't know how to have a coaching conversation they don't know how to do transactional things don't know how to manage expenses and what they need there is not you know five day course what they need is just like how-to guides you know what to do in your first 90 days checklist of things to work through is literally the most popular thing we ever produce for leaders mistakes not to make how to you know manage the performance improvement process what to do when somebody needs maternity leave you know simple guidance has nothing to do with learning it's like you know the underground map Think of it that way. It's just like yeah. the underground, right? So I just need to get from A to B. Give me the thing that, that tells me how to do that. And that's a really easy thing to do. But there is also a really, really good reason to get leaders together because not everything, you know, if, if you're a, a pilot, you can't do it by just kind of looking up the checklist. Some things you, you just have to do, know how to do in the moment. And to build that kind of capability, you need to give people a chance to practice, not sit behind desks looking at PowerPoint slides identify what are some of the critical experiences that are make or break for leaders like having a developmental conversation or having giving a feedback conversation or you know having a different conversation with a client or a stakeholder or resolving a you know a legal um uh, kind of falling out and identify those critical experiences and then have people play them through and give people free. We're giving people a chance to practice, just like you would with a flight simulator. There's only so much you can learn from the handbook. Build a flight simulator for your leaders so they can actually practice some of the engine failure type situations um, and, and do that. And that's what I call experience design. I'll give you one simple example. It relates to what we were talking about earlier. We built an experience for leaders talking about the shift from being directive to enabling. Now, you can do that with PowerPoint slides and lots of things. But what we did was you had actors playing the two different kinds of leader and we put people in a group with a very directive leader who marked their homework who said no stop doing that who micromanaged and then we put them in a group with a very enabling leader who coached them who supported them who helped them who checked in with them and at the end of it we looked at their performance on the task and we said and how did that make you feel and no leader who's been through that experience is in any doubt about the negative impact of micromanagement and the positive benefits of actually enabling and, and working with your team. But we, we didn't need to put any PowerPoint slides up. So experience design, if you're doing something face-to-face, performance support, if you just want to give people kind of guidance at the point of need. And what I'm also hearing there is what you're doing is with that 
mistakes not to make or the top things that can mess up your career before you've even started here kind of thing is what yeah, you're, yeah. you're really giving me a context to pay attention because you're saying, listen, you don't know me and you may or may not like me, but I've been here long enough to know if you do then those 10 things wrong, let me know how it works out for you. So right now I'm your best friend. Now, afterwards, when you've, when you've got your own momentum, you can have an opinion. But there is something about that that says, so it doesn't matter what your take on this is. Yeah, that, that's something that I need to pay attention to. Uh, and then, yeah, then it yeah. builds trust with you as, a, as an entity. It builds trust with the team. Actually, it was those things that meant I had a good first 12 months or whatever it is. This, these are trusted counsel. So there's something here about, yeah, making it, engaging yes making it make sense to me giving it meaning but also building i think what i'm hearing there is building trust that when i offer you something you know if i tell you look it's 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 a health and safety it's, it's got to happen so it doesn't even matter but if i'm personally offering or my team is you trust that we have your inherent success at the heart of our actions i think i'm hearing that in yeah and i think one of the best ways to build that trust is the same with client work is take your time to listen at the beginning and really understand what matters that's like how you'd build trust normally in a conversation you know kind of really understand what the other person's about what they care about what they don't and kind of connect with with those concerns and i think that's the best way to build programs you know to really understand what new leaders or senior leaders worry about to work with those groups you know to really understand as part of the program what matters to them and to connect and show that you you've listened it's a great way to build build trust um again it's it's easily missed if i was a university if i was a college lecturer as i was teaching psychology i didn't have to build trust with them do i they just they just march in i don't even know have to need to know their names honestly i just they sit down shut up i'm going to read from the board that's the approach and that approach corrupts so much of what we do whereas as i think you're indicating real learning comes from a, a place where you understand what somebody cares about you build that relationship you build trust and within that framework change can happen mm. so i mean listen I'm, I'm super alert, Nick, that with a bottle of wine and a, and a good curry, I could go on for the next two or three days. <laughs> so I'm being careful as to what doors I open up because I could run down them with you for some considerable time. So, um, but I, I, just a couple of, I'm going to change direction just a, a, a little bit. Um, most people like yourselves, and I, you know, I, I have, you know, if somebody says, guys, is there a book on leadership that you think I should read? I've mm. got one where I go, look, love it or hate it. There's one book. I think you should read and it's whatever. Uh, and I just wonder if there's a, that, you know, those, those people that are starting out, you might get a lot of different things for different ideas for different things, but yeah, there's one or two reads. And if you, if you understand the narrative, if you understand what they're, where they're coming at it from, it'll set you up for a good way of thinking or a good frame of reference. And I just wonder, you can't say your own because if I do that, I can't, I have to say, do, do you say your own book guy? I go, well, of course I indicate I've got one, but I don't offer that as it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm teasing you. But, uh, just so Googling, what would you, Googling yeah. it. There's, there's two actually. Um, yeah. And the, the, the one that actually, the, the, the positive one um, is, positive one. Um, <laughs> uh, so the positive one is Ram Sharam's um, uh, leadership pipeline. Um, that was so um, 
instrumental in changing my thinking about leadership and leadership learning while I was at BP. It, the focus was basically on the transitions that leaders need to make at different points. And that told us so much about leadership, which is if you're going to build effective leadership learning, you really need to look at those transitional points because that's when change and learning can happen. That's when you get a return on your investment in learning. And it also talked about the kinds of shifts that needed to happen. And that hadn't really occurred to me in quite that way before, which is that there's a really big shift between leadership at senior level where you're leading leaders, basically you're parent to parents mm. versus first level leadership where you're stepping up into a parent role. So you're kind of from child to parent and those are fundamentally different shifts and if if your programs don't get that but the other one that is slightly tongue-in-cheek but it's helpful is a book called it's called the end of leadership by barbara kellerman and and it made me laugh at the time because i was reading the two together and basically barbara just says all this leadership gump is a load of nonsense and and all the leadership learning is a complete waste of time and and why that's helpful is that I, i think we need to be challenged you know, I think it's healthy for us to be challenged. And it's a book full of challenges to our thinking about what you, what impact are you really making? And what do you really mean by leadership? Now, I'll, I'll give you one illustration of why that matters. What, what do leaders produce? Does anybody know the answer to that question? I mean, I've worked with lots of, of organizations who talk about performance and tracking performance. And if you're working in a contact center, you can do that. You can do sales, time on a call, babbity, babbity. How do we track what leaders are doing? Uh, my best guess is it's engagement. But the honest reality is mostly it's just kind of cozy chats. You know, it's like your leader will sit down with you and say, I think you're doing a good job. And probably that's because you've managed upwards, you know, and you may not have accomplished anything all the way back to Gareth's advice, you know, in in the BBC. But, you know, that's our our framework for leadership. So I like that Barbara's book challenges us to think about, gets it down to the nitty gritty what are our leaders really producing? Can we track it? What are our leadership programs really changing? Can we track it? So that was a good book. I think that's super. I, that re- it leads me actually. To, I, I have this so what factor, mm-hmm. which is at the start of every component part of a, a day or whatever it is. I just go, right. So the so what, as in, so when you're done, the so what should be this. And then at the end, we just go, okay. So if I asked you, so what are you going to do with it? So what are you thinking about it? So what this so what factor, I think is very interesting because when I'm working or I've got some of my associates, you know, it's very easy to get into a delivery rhythm. And I go, yeah, but if it doesn't translate into them coming back or saying to their, what their boss, what does their boss say? So what was the value of it? So what did it do? So what can you bring back? So what's the difference going to be? And if they can't, people can't leave answering that i think that's uh so I, i'm going to read that book i think that's uh, i mean you said tongue-in-cheek but i have a sneaky suspicion actually there's a lot of stuff to be alert to and uh what, what was yours yeah. what was your book I, you know, I, was, I was wait i was pausing he's going to ask me in a second yeah. so uh coos and posner the leadership challenge yeah. i just you know I, and i think a lot of these things you could read them maybe two years later or two years before and maybe something doesn't quite resonate in the same way but you know when you read the right book at the right time mm. you know and it was just yeah. and it just like you know modeling the way and just you know in, inspiring others and challenging the process yeah. and just things that you go yeah you know but in in such a way where what and i think this is something it's also really has taught me that a lot of leadership rhetoric mm. is 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 really a brand on top of an idea that's been around for a long long time call it role modeling 
call it modeling the way, call it being the advocate, call it being the, 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 the lighthouse, call it being the, you can call it what you like, but actually at its base level, most of this is very human. You've got to talk to another human being and you've got to guess what? There's a spectrum between give them some praise through to be curious through to bring them some challenge, call it what you like, build what grid you like around it. But a lot of what we do is very human. It's how you would interact with any other human being. I don't know if I like that. I don't know if that sits well with me. Could I have your help here? You know, when you say that you want to do that tomorrow, I'm sorry, I didn't have clarity exactly what you wanted. It's humans talking to each other. The difference is you have authority and you have a span of control and then you have fears that go with that (laughs) and it builds up. But actually, what does my eight-year-old want from me? What does my friend want from me? Clarity, truth, transparency, no surprises. You know, it's, like it's a very human thing that we do. And if we're not careful, we wrap it up and make it something mm. much more complex because it suits us to sell something, but it, it, it sells if it's a complexity that I have, I have translated for you, as opposed to actually mm. it is quite simple if we, let's not dress it up, you know. I like that a lot. It chimes with my experience of leadership is that there are a lot of leadership fads um, and there's a lot of over glamorization, I think, of leadership. That's as a great the, phrase. Yeah, as the, the sort of the person who's dragging the team up the hill, all this kind of stuff, and the person who's got the great vision and the, the rock star leader. And often rock star leaders are quite toxic leaders, frankly. Um, and I think that just exactly as you said a lot of leadership is the human stuff and actually it's simple interactions and for that reason um i wrote a blog post about this age not long ago a couple of weeks back a lot of what first level leaders do is just parenting it's as simple as that you know it's like they they're just in charge all they know about leadership of course they will have seen some other leaders and so they would have picked up a bit from that but all they know about leadership is that now they're in charge and what they've learned about being in charge how to talk to people how to interact them and so on they've learned predominantly from their parents and so that's the biggest most consistent mistake honestly i've seen in first level leadership at least which is that people just act like their parents and that may be good and it may be bad but either way they need to actually be aware of that and actually move away from that because long term that it doesn't work you know not everyone wants to be treated like children and that it means you just hire children as well and it's just weird you know when, when you said the over glamorization i thought that's a beautiful phrase but i also i, I think it also applies to methodologies you know and mm. new and, and new outputs and um you know it's and if i think you know didn't somebody like marcus aurelius probably say that <laughs> you, know, you know normally i can find a quote from you know a couple of thousand years ago, whatever it might be, a couple hundred years ago, where I actually go, I think that's probably being said, you know, as in it's not new, you know, and, and I, uh, so, I did hear somebody, a colleague big, of mine. Big is, fan of uh, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. really, in, in, in the original, not just the, um, the uh, oh. whatever it was, gladiator quotes, you know, what oh. we do today echoes in eternity. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, well, I'm gonna, Marcus Aurelius from uh, Gladiator. I'm going to do a shout yeah. out to a gentleman called Miles, Miles Jarrett, uh, if he's listening, but he said, um, the thing is, Guy, he said, it's like in music. He said, there's no new notes. And it just made me think, you know, he says it, there's, there's application and there's the, 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 the creation of it, but there's, there's no new notes. 
And uh, that kind of makes me sometimes think when I'm getting a bit clever for myself, I go, you know what? Let's not call a spade a terrain inverter. <laughs> you know, let's, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's keep it, let's keep it, you know, at a level that actually most, uh, what's the complaint that I get from most people on programs very often is, I thought it really made sense at the time, but on reflection, I haven't actually done anything with it. <laughs> and, mm. and I don't want to, you know, I think when we're, we're operating at a certain level, we don't want to fall into that um yeah mistake so listen um i'm I'm going to kind of wind this into a gentle close um because again if i open up too many doors and corridors i'm going to shoot down them with you and uh you know sort of (laughs) keep talking (laughs) so uh so for you uh i I would like to just i I know you didn't ask to or talk about it but i think it's relevant because if i was on somebody's podcast and i you know the things i've done would become relevant but just um i know it's the 5di method isn't it that you have in in, uh your work and just if i was going to pick up your book um almost why would i so somebody's listening and they go "Ooh, that's that's why i go and have a look at it i noticed you got 70 odd you know really positive reviews on amazon um so you know there's, there's there's good stuff there but somebody said hey guy you know why should i pick up that book uh and give it my time and effort um you know what what would be the reasoning for you that's a really interesting question thank you for asking i guess it's sort of depends who you are there's it's a book written i suppose for three different audiences uh, at what i consider kind of the base level if you just want to design you know learning programs that are more effective get more bang for your buck that's a reason at the second level if you sort of want to um, kind of understand why education, you know, doesn't doesn't work really. Education of uh, there's a chapter called Education of the Great um, Learning and Relation Scheme. Um, effectively, education is like the opposite to learning. It crushes people's desire to learn. It reduces learning, and so on. And we, that's what we're doing a lot. So education and learning for people interested in that's there. And then just at the top level. I like to think the top level because because philosophically that's what I think of as the top is people who just want to understand learning and cognition. You know, I think just we've got it wrong for literally thousands of years. Um, if you're just interested in whether that relates to kind of AI or more philosophical pursuits or, um, you know, just understanding human beings and how they think and why they think the way they do and why they learn and how they learn, um, then that that's in there as well. So three audiences, make your course better, fix education, understand learning and cognition by golly sold i'm gonna go and get a copy and pay attention oh, to yeah. it so. <laughs> have to use use that pitch again sometime <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the one so listen i'm gonna bring this to an end just for me and for people listening in i just want to say an enormous thank you you know i know you know you're, you're busy like everybody else so just for me to you thank you so much and uh stay on the line when we come to an end but thank you very much you're welcome yeah i enjoyed it thanks guy that's it so i hope you enjoyed the episode please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching team effectiveness and changing culture oh and of course you can buy my book living brave leadership on amazon so on that note see you soon